It's wonderful to be with you today, and I do want to say welcome to those who may be tuning in on live, online and watching live stream. We're going to continue and finish up the second chapter of Genesis today. Last week, uh, just to give you a recap, we began looking at Genesis 2, and there were four themes within this chapter that I brought to light, and this week we're going to finish that fourth. The th- but the third, the first one rather, is it asked the question, why are we here? And hopefully together we understand now that humanity is here and was created to relate to God. The second theme and question that we asked is what are we to do? Humanity is created then to engage in productive work. And the third question, this third theme is how are we to live? And we understand now that humanity is to be morally responsible to God. Now, this fourth theme, which we're going to continue today, continues to answer the question, how are we to live? With the understanding, though, that humanity is morally responsible to God, our creator lays the foundation of human sexuality and declares the building block of our society is to be marriage. Once again, the author Moses was correcting a false thinking the Israelites had adopted from over 400 years of Egyptian influence. And once again, today, hopefully, we understand the importance of embracing a true story of human sexuality and marriage if we as God's people are to move forward and to be who he's called us to be. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your presence that's here and your spirit that not only lives in us, but comes in a mighty way when we worship you. So again, open our thoughts and our minds, not for Alan to speak into it, but for your word, your truth. Help us to embrace the true story, to shut our ears and minds to a false narrative that is continually screamed in our ears by culture. Let us embrace the truth in your name. Everyone said, amen. Amen. Now, as we address what some may consider to be quote unquote difficult issues, let us remember today that these things are not difficult to understand. Rather, they are difficult to say. They're difficult to believe at times, and they are difficult to follow in a world that rejects biblical authority. Human sexuality and the institution of marriage has been and continues to be under major attack by our culture and our society. There maybe has been no greater influence or voice in defining what sexuality and family and marriage is in America rather than television. There's probably no greater voice than American television that tries to define sexuality and marriage. And I thought it would be interesting because I think we forget and we become inoculated to the fact of how influential television can be. So we're going to go through the history and look at how the world has tainted and tried to define sexuality and marriage. Some of you may remember the show 1957. How do you remember? Remember the show Leave it to Beaver? Okay. They introduced 
family, basically, to national television. And they portrayed in their mind the ideal suburban family of the 20th century. 1960 to 1968, there was a show called The Andy Griffith Show. Right up there, okay? They introduced the single parent family. This was the first show on television that introduced single parents. Um, or single parent family to America, which, by the way, resulted from death, not from divorce. Now, as we move into my generation of growing up, 1969 to 1984, it was the Brady Bunch. Sherwood Schwartz was the creator, and he created this family of eight, actually after reading an article in the LA Times that stated 30% of marriages at that time had a child from a previous marriage. Now, in this show, Mike Brady was a widower. And Schwartz, the creator, he actually wanted Carol Brady, his wife, to be a divorcee. And think about this. The network objected at the time and refused to let him develop the character of Carol Brady as a divorcee. My have times have changed. Now, 1975 to 1985, you might remember the show, The Jeffersons. It was the first American television program that highlighted an interracial couple where the husband was Caucasian and married to an African-American woman. The Jeffersons is one of the longest running sitcoms in the history of American television. And the show focused on George and Louise Jefferson, an affluent African-American couple living in New York City. Now, The Cosby Show ran from 1984 to 1992, and there are some shows that do have a significant positive influence and have had that on America. And The Cosby Show was actually one of them. The Cosby Show, probably out of all of these shows, was the most morally grounded. And it challenged society's perception of African-American families and was actually very quite progressive in its day. The show had a very strong moral standard. Then things began to change, 1984 to 1992, a show called Who's the Boss? It was the first show to explore cohabitation and the sexual tension that was developed with live-in housekeeper Tony Maselli. This also explored or began to explore gender role reversals on television. And then Married with Children came in 1987 and ran 10 years this show began exploring dysfunctional aspects of family and pushed the limits of appropriateness on national television. And while it was very controversial and pushed those limits, it was one of the highest watched ratings of all time. 1994, the show Ellen was introduced. This was the first show on national television with an openly gay lesbian character. It was canceled only after two seasons following a very controversial episode, which still is one of the highest ratings of all time. Will and Grace was introduced in 1998 and it picked up where Ellen left off, but was less controversial on same-sex attraction issues. This show made you forget the same-sex relationship and had a very long and successful history, eventually winning 16 Emmy Awards. Finally, in 2009, a show by the name of Modern Family was introduced, and the final episode will actually run this April. This show is still running, was very, is very successful, and it actually might be the most progressive to have ever gained such success. It features a same-sex married couple with a child and various other mixed relationships. These are the false stories. These are the false narratives that are being screamed at culture 
in defining what it means to be human, sexuality, and what it means to be family and marriage. It's a false story that our culture communicates as it seeks to define these things. But today I ask the question, and I hope you ask it with me, what does God say? What is the true story? And to do that, we're not only going to look at Genesis 2 again, and we're going to finish that, complete that chapter. We're going to go back and look at Genesis 1. Remember, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 both tell the story of creation. In chapter 1, Moses gives us an overview of creation, if you will, a chronological view. And then in chapter 2, he revisits it and gives us a more or a logical and a more detailed view. So going back to Genesis 1, you can read on the screen if you have your Bibles and you want to open them, Genesis 1, verse 27. It's a verse we've used a lot over the last few weeks. It reads, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. God created and embodied human sexuality as male and female. The sexual distinction between male and female is fundamental in what it means to be human. Now, God's decision to create a female counterpart to the male was not coincidental. The female woman, Eve, uniquely met three essential foundations. Now, in your bulletin today, I believe there's some space, and you wanna, if you want to take some notes, write these down. These are the three essential foundations of why God created woman, why God created Eve to be a partner with Adam. Here's the first. We go to Genesis 2.18. It was not good for man to be alone. And all the ladies said, Amen. I mean, that's not hard to figure out. You leave a bunch of guys left to themselves on their own device, there's going to be trouble. Well, God understood that and knew that. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Think about this. Throughout the entire week of creation, God looked at his work and said three words. It was good. He created something, it was good. Created something, it was good. Created something, it was good. But now as he looks down on man for the very first time, God sees something not quite right. And it was not good that man should be alone. We humans are the most social creatures on the planet. We flourish in groups and we perish alone. Our very survival, whether it be physical, emotional, or spiritual, depends on the interaction of others. We can grow and mature only through intimate relationships. It was not good for man to be alone. Here's the second reason. A counterpart suitable to him was needed. In 18, verse 18, he gives names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky and all of the wild animals, but still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and he closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man and Adam wrote a song and said, at last... I like to think he sang it rather than said it. 
Adam said at last, the man explained. Before arriving at the concept of woman, God creates all of the animals of the earth. And he brings them in front of Adam and he presents them to Adam as possible companions. And none of them fit. No fitting companion was found among the animals because his nature was fundamentally different from theirs. We talked about it before. The spirit of God was breathed into man. Animals do not contain the spirit of God. Now, I want to camp for just a minute on a phrase in that verse we just read. That no helper was just right for him. You see, too often men have taken that word helper and have put women in a place of subordination under men and non-equality. And I want to help us understand that as we look at the original Hebrew language, hopefully you realize that when you compare languages, Hebrew and English, at times there are English words that just, just don't describe or fit exactly what the initial language meant. Such is the case in that word helper. The word helper there is pronounced etzer. It's a Hebrew word. And it's usually translated in your Bible and in most translations as help or helper. The problem is it's misleading in English because for us that word helper tends to suggest something of a person being a subordinate or inferior. And that is not the case in the word etzer. The Hebrew meaning of etzer or helper describes, you probably need to put the word superior in front of it. It's a superior helper. It's interesting that 21 times that word etzer is used in the Bible. Two, only two, are referred to woman. The other 19 are actually referred to God. God was Israel's etzer, was her helper. And the word counterpart or partner is a far better word. And you see, woman was taken from Adam's rib, from his side, and was created to be right beside Adam as his partner and his counterpart. Men need women. Peter Lombard, I believe, said it best when he wrote, Eve was not taken from the feet of Adam to be his slave, nor from his head to be his ruler, but from his side to be his beloved partner. The third reason for women's creation was that the human race was to be preserved through sexual union. In verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. God created men and women separately, male and female, to be the means of continuing the human race. Man was not good alone. He needed a counterpart he needed a partner. And then to continue society, to continue humanity, it took one woman and one man. This is the divine arrangement for the human species. Man alone couldn't do it. Woman alone couldn't do it. Two men can't do it and two women can't do it. It requires one man and one woman. Moving on in Genesis chapter 2, 24 we read, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. God created marriage as a faithful covenant relationship between one man and one woman for a lifetime. 
The Bible views this relationship between Adam and Eve as a pattern for all marriages to follow on earth. This pictures a situation where man departs from the household of which he was. And it implies that a new household is being established. That phrase, hold fast to his wife, it indicates that this new relationship between a man and his wife is the basis of a completely new household that is established. And it's actually interesting because in Eastern Mediterranean culture, typically it is the woman who leaves and joins the man's household. And Moses here is saying, no, man leaves his former household. Woman, woman leaves her former household. And the two become one and create a completely new household. And think about this. The establishment of marriage in Genesis 2, it comes before the establishment of any other institution. It comes immediately after creation of man and woman. And it is significant that God establishes marriage here before he establishes cities, nations, courts of law, governments, schools, businesses, organization, and even the church. It comes before the establishment of any institution in any human society. And marriage is foundational to the establishment of a such society. God knew what he was doing. Not only for us as individuals in the creation of marriage, but he knew what he was doing for the health and the sustainability of society itself. Now we've spent a lot of time in the Old Testament but the New Testament also affirms this. Jesus himself affirms it in the 19th chapter of Matthew. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the law at that time, they come to Jesus and they have a question about divorce. And they're trying to trap Jesus. And so they say, Jesus, is it rightful for us to divorce? Now they're looking for any excuse to leave the woman that they are married to. Jesus responds to them in Matthew 19 Verse 4 through 6. And Jesus replies to them with a question. Haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning God made them male and female. And he said this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Jesus goes back to what we just read in Genesis 2. And then he says, since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Jesus himself understands the essence of marriage was established by God from the beginning between male and female. He also affirms the institution of marriage was created by God and it was intended to be a lifelong relationship. Now the Pharisees don't like that answer. And they fire back, well, then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. In other words, from the beginning, God sees marriage. Jesus recognizes it. God sees marriage as a faithful covenant relationship between one man and one woman for a lifetime. But because of sin, God would later allow for divorce. 
But his original plan, his best plan, his design and the blueprint was this covenant relationship between man and woman for a lifetime. So why do we have all this confusion? Why do we wrestle with this? Why do we fight against God's clear definition of human sexuality and marriage? That's found in Genesis chapter 3. And we understand, or hopefully that we do, that it was through Adam and Eve's disobedience to God. The moment they partook of the tree of good and evil, they disobeyed God and sin came into the world. And in Genesis 3, 7, it reads, At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. Humanity's disobedience brought sexual brokenness. Now, we have to understand that fundamentally, it was disobedience to God that brought brokenness to every aspect of humanity. We are broken in every area of our life. Society is broken, culture, the world is broken in every area because of disobedience. But this also does include human sexuality. What God had created is beautiful and good in Genesis 2. 2, It unravels in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, their creator. And one of the first manifestations that something was wrong in the garden appeared in the area, area of sexuality. They're no longer naked and unashamed. They're naked and ashamed. And at the moment, their eyes were opened and they felt shame. For the first time, shame is linked to their sexuality. And in that moment, all sexuality became broken. What was made to be beautiful and good became distorted and tainted. And from there, Genesis unfolds with broken sexuality. And it manifests itself in different ways. Think on this, Genesis chapter 4, polygamy enters human history when Lamech marries two wives. 16th chapter of Genesis, Abraham sleeps with his slave woman, Hagar. In in the 19th chapter, the men of Sodom attempt to gang rape Lot's male guest, and Lot offers up, even offers up his own virgin daughters instead. Later on, Lot's own daughters get him drunk and sleep with him. On and on. This is just in the book of Genesis, the beginnings. Stories go on and on of broken sexuality. And by the time we get to the New Testament, sexual brokenness is so pervasive that most of the list of sins in Paul's letters begin with sexual immorality. When human sexuality became broken by sin, it opened up a box of all types of distortion. Lust, fornication, pornography, premarital sex, cohabitation, homosexuality, adultery, Polygamy, rape, incest, and every other you can imagine was created by man. We live in a world that is broken, and we live in a world of broken sexuality. Now, need to be really clear. What is God's standard of human sexuality in marriage? God's standard is he created man and he created woman. Male and female. And sex was supposed to happen within the institution of marriage of one man and one woman for a lifetime. So when we talk about holiness in the area of sexuality, 
That is God's standard. And it was through Adam, through one, that we became broken and all of that failed. But the good news is there was one who came later who brought wholeness and healing. Paul writes about this in the fifth chapter of Romans when he says, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everybody. That's all of us. Adam's one sin brings brokenness and condemnation for everyone. But he writes, Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. So it is so critical for us to remember today that Christ's obedience brings sexual wholeness. Adam and Eve failed and disobeyed God and brought brokenness. But today we have healing and wholeness through the blood of Jesus Christ. There was a verse that really stood out to me on this subject this week. And it was part of a letter written by Paul to a young church in a city of Corinth. And Corinth, if you did some history on what that city was like in the first century... It would be like Las Vegas today. It probably was called Sin City in first century. And so you have this, you have this church, these young Christians, this church that probably wasn't even as old as ACAC is. And Paul writes them a letter and he addresses some of this. And I want to read it to you. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul writes and he says to these Christians in this Sin City, in this culture of decay, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or are greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says this, Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. Some of you were once like that, but there's evidence of change. And there's three things that I want to pull out as we wrap this up today from that text. And the first is this. This is so important. There's no hierarchy in sin. We as a church are very guilty of ranking sin. Well, that's worse than that. And Paul goes through, and what does he talk about? He says, those who do these things, it's sexual immorality, homosexuality is in there, but he also talks about greed. He talks about lust. He talks about alcoholism. He talks about pride. Idolatry. There's no hierarchy in sin. And I think we have to be so careful that as we preach and as we teach and as we stand for truth, God help us if we don't have an equal, if not more, bucket of grace to go with that. Because the world looks at us, we turn our eyes outside these four walls and we condemn communities such as the LGBT community without turning those eyes in on us and recognizing the own sexual sin that is within our church. 
if we're going to talk about homosexuality, we also at the same time better hold a high standard to cohabitation, to pornography, to lust, fornication, and everything else. The reality is we all are not only broken people, we are all sexually broken people. We need to stand for truth. We need to have messages like this that are hard to deliver because our culture is saying otherwise. But just as much as God's grace and his blood has washed our sins, sexual or otherwise, so too we need to show the world that that same grace is available to them. But there also is forgiveness and wholeness through Jesus that is only found in repentance. Healing and salvation and redemption is available to us only if we recognize, God, I accept your story. I accept your narrative. I accept your definition of marriage. I accept your definition of human sexuality. It is only through repentance when we turn that we find wholeness. But there is forgiveness. There is wholeness. There is no sin that you can't turn back from if you repent and come to the cross of Christ. And here's the last one. Sexual desires are not a matter of genetics, but rather of selfishness. You're not born necessarily... I'll break it down very simple. Genetically, you want to know how you're born? You're born to sin. Whether you have heterosexual attraction or same-sex attraction, you're broken and you have sinful, lustful desires. You may desire money. You may desire food. We don't talk about that one very often in church. You may desire alcohol. Whatever it is, you have sin nature in you. And Paul's saying it's not genetic. There is hope and healing. There is a sanctification that is available. There is a moment that we have to come to, a crisis moment, if you will, when you recognize, you know what? I can't just walk out of here and decide, okay, I'm not going to sin anymore. There is a daily outpouring of the Holy Spirit that I need in my life to be made whole. Salvation and restoration are found through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and sanctification is made available through the power of the Spirit. Now I want to close in this way. My heart is heavy and it has been all week for this, not because I'm afraid to speak truth or to hold up God's standard, but because I know even in this room there are families that have been affected And the reality is, if I were to ask you today, I do not want you to raise your hand, but if I were to ask how many are affected by divorce, by adultery, the reality is statistically 70, 75% of the men in this room are watching pornography. The reality is we talk about pornography with men, but often we don't talk about women having emotional ties to romance novels, movies like Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever it will be, which is just as lustful and involved in fornication. The reality is there are families, there were two couples last night that came up and they're wrestling with sexual sins of their children and they're wrestling with how do I, how do I show truth but also show grace. I know the reality is here. I know that there are some of you that you're on your second or your third marriage and it's not your fault. God's grace and forgiveness is there. We're sexually broken people. So I don't want anyone leaving today with guilt and shame because God's grace is here. 
but I want to take some time and I want, there are some, I believe, that you haven't gotten to the point of repentance. For some of you, those words are hard and you're going, I'm not sure. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would convict you today, not me. And then I want to give you a moment to say, God, this is really hard for me to understand. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit can do work in your heart. So I want to do that. I want to give us an opportunity to pray. If your marriage is on the brink today, I'm believing that God can bring healing to that. For those of you moms and dads that have kids that aren't following Christ, and because of sexual sin, you're wrestling with it, that God can give you wisdom and grace. And he can restore. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? We are a broken people, Father. We're broken in many ways, but this area of sexuality just really seems to polarize and not even just church and culture. It, it, it tears up the church. It's tearing up the church of Jesus Christ. And we need to accept and really be affirmed in your definition of marriage and human sexuality, despite how hard it may be, I pray first and foremost that we would stand on your truth and never waver. But Lord, also with the same amount of grace that you have shown us, we would be a people who would show that grace to the world. Today I pray for, Lord, the marriages that they fought here. Maybe they didn't talk. Maybe the divorce papers are on the table at home waiting to be signed. God, do healing today in a way that only you can. I pray that instead of a walking away, you would bring them together. I pray for, Lord, the, those that are single, that maybe what I've spoken, they're, they're living in sin and they're not doing that. You would convict today and you would give them the strength to stand up and make what is right. I pray for our kids today, our teenagers who are being bombarded with messages that are wrong and false. Protect their ears, protect their eyes. Pray for the mom and dads who are wrestling with kids and these issues and they don't know how to balance that truth and grace. Would you bring wisdom? Would you bring discernment? Thank you for your wholeness. Thank you for your blood that washes us and makes us right with you. In your name we pray, amen.